0: From Mark chapter 5 be verses uh, 1 to 20. Then they came to the other side of the sea, the country of Gardenas. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there out, of, he met out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. Because he is Often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him and always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, "What have I do? What have I done with you?" Jesus, Son of the Most High God, and I implore you, by God, that you do not torment me. For He said, for He said to him, "Come out of the man, unclean spirit." Then He asked him, "What is your name?" And he answered, saying, "My name is Legion, for we are many." And He also begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. He would. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission, then the unclean spirit went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed and had a legion sitting clothed in the right hand mind, in the right mind in his right mind and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed, and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, yet he said, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim, in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and his marvel. This is the reading of the Lord.
1: Hey God! Thanks, Terry. You may be seated. You may be seated. Wonderful. Now, if you are just now joining us, either in person or online, my name is Evan Skelton. I am one of the pastors here at Bayless, and it really is a privilege to have you. We are a very simple church, as Larry's already described. Um, We're a church that's about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus Christ. We can't help but talk about it, and we want to walk in step with it and apply it to absolutely every part of our lives. We understand that the gospel changes everything. And we're going to see exactly that claim put on display here in our passage today. And I hope you're ready. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. In fact, one of the best things you can do in in a worship service like this, especially in a sermon, I recognize some of us, We've never been a part of something like this. It's weird for us to sit in on a sermon. I mean, is this like a lecture? Is this like a TED Talk? How do we do this? One of the best ways to do that is to make sure that your Bible is open and that the person preaching, whether it's me or not, is saying what God is saying and not their own two cents. We, we need God's Word, and it is the best. In fact, we encourage you to take notes as you go because if you're as forgetful as me, we need time thinking on these things throughout the week, not because particularly I have anything that impressive because God's Word does absolutely change and reorient all of our lives. It changes everything. And so we'll be, we're going to be, again, in Mark chapter 5. And I'm going to say, I, wanna, I want you to know, as a bit of a teaser, uh, that um, Jesus is going to break a bit of our uh, categories um, today. Uh, he's going to uh, betray some of our expectations, especially, I don't know if you grew up religious or if you, uh, if you have um, already an image in your mind of who Jesus is like, But I know that many of us have come here for a variety of different reasons And what if you what you expect from jesus is a little bit of encouragement maybe a little bit of Motivation maybe a little bit of hallmark channel for your day You know, we're in the time of year where everybody's watching like these christmas movies anybody Let's just be honest already watch one of these christmas movies. I hope not. This is a discipleship issue. Okay, so this is Let thanksgiving have its day. All right. So nonetheless, that's right. I need that applause Okay, now the uh the if you what do you expect from Jesus is something uh, if you expect him to be interesting, maybe a little inspiring, but relatively to leave your life as it is, you're gonna have a hard time squaring that with this passage. The thing is, many of us we view Jesus like we view those uh, sound apps, maybe on your phone, or maybe you have a little machine. Anybody go to sleep with a sound machine? You have these sound machine settings for a uh, thunderstorm or for crashing waves. Anybody fall asleep to these? The ironic thing is if you were actually in the middle of crashing waves or an evening thunderstorm, the last thing that you would feel like is sleeping. Similarly with Jesus, the closer that we get to Jesus, the more nervous Jesus might actually make us, the more unsettled we might actually be. We expect to get from Jesus just something to help us sleep at night, at least some of us, But when we actually meet Jesus, we actually see and experience his power, it can actually make us very, very nervous. C.S. Lewis pictures this brilliantly in a children's book, of all things, and one of my favorites called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And one of its characters is the lion Aslan. He's a mighty, uh, terrifying beast. um, And and, uh, the children ask about him at one point, Is Aslan tame? And the character they're talking to responds, well, of course he isn't tame, of course he isn't safe, but he is good. Today we're going to experience a little bit more of what is meant by Lewis, and a little bit of why this is such an appropriate description for Jesus in the Word. We're going to find again why this vision of Jesus, this vision of Jesus who is neither safe nor tame, but supremely good be that much more comforting to us in the end. But let's get to it. We're going to be uh, keeping our Bibles open to Mark chapter 5, and going to be looking at uh, this in three different parts, or perhaps you could call it three chapters. Uh, The madman, the messiah, and the missionary. I think it's impossible for me to, one, not have three points in a sermon, and for them not to all have the same letter. But regardless, maybe it'll happen one of these Sundays. Madman, Okay, the Messiah and the missionary. Let's look at the first, the madman. Now, our habit here at Bayless and in many churches is to work through books of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And that's for a lot of different reasons. You know, one of the major reasons is is that we understand God's people have always been ruled, if you will, or guided by God's word. God's people, what, what makes them God's people, how they continue to operate as God's people, as they want more of this. And they want it to inform every piece of their lives, not just their Sundays. They, and the best way they understand, that we understand, to uh, understand or to take God's word seriously is we take the context seriously. We want to let the Bible unfold on its own terms rather than to hop around to, whatever, to find whatever sounds like what I already believe. I want to read the Bible as it is. You ever taken a text message out of context? Ever that led to an argument in your life? Well, we don't want to do that to God's word. We want to read it as it's actually meant to be read, not looking for what confirms what I already think. But another reason that our pastors here at Bayless prefer to work through the Bible this way is so often because passages build upon one another. Uh, And the longer that we listen in on the Bible— the more we take in of it, the more we begin to notice, actually, and the more, uh, uh, m- the more complete the picture gets for us. This passage builds actually directly on an event that we considered last week. And if you weren't here, that's okay, I'll, I'll uh, spoil it for you. There was a storm in which uh, the lives of the disciples were threatened. Uh, they're on the water, it's poor, cold waters pouring into the boat, and they think that their lives are done, their lives are flashing before their eyes, and yet... Um, that same storm that they thought they were done for in, they, they watched be stilled with the word from Jesus. With a word of power, stills the storm around them. It was an event that left his closest friends not just dumbfounded, but very, very unsettled. It even says that they were afraid of Jesus, more afraid of Jesus than of the storm. They'd seen miracles from Jesus, but they had never seen anything like this. This was simply too big. This power uh, of that storm, as terrifying as it was, was not quite as terrifying as the power within the man that they thought that they had figured out. And the more that we ex- are exposed to Jesus, the to ta- we more we take Jesus as he is and take him seriously, the more we're going to find the same you know, on the beach of Gergesa, or as your passage will put it, the Gerasenes, it's, again, the, that's probably the region that they're in, but the, the city is called Gergesa, they find another storm crackling. Only this storm is an internal one, you could say, and it's within a man. One who is, if we're honest, like something out of a horror movie. Now, we just got on the, we're on the other side of Halloween. I hate horror movies, but nonetheless, in here, this is disturbing at every turn, this passage. Perhaps you can imagine with me, Jesus and his disciples finally arriving on land after what you could <laughs> call a very emotional evening, if you will, having almost just lost their lives, and then seeing what they saw from Jesus. It's just a bit much, okay? So they're arriving now at land, perhaps they're damp and still windswept, and they're ready to kiss that sweet ground, and as soon as they step out onto dry land, it seems as if they are chased down, confronted by a man who, honestly, is a little scary. In fact, as soon as they meet this man, you have to wonder if they're scrambling back in the boat, ready to head back into that storm, wondering, okay, Jesus, bad idea. Picture it with me, this man, another uh, gospel writer tells us is uh, was buck naked. Okay, don't picture that part, but nonetheless, this guy, he was terrifying and uh, and weird, very strange. He, he um, was no surprise with this man, lived perhaps with another uh, possessed man, it seems, in Matthew, um, although this one really takes the spotlight. He lived cut off from everyone around him. He had been exiled, excommunicated, set to the outskirts into the tombs, and who could be Surprised. Again, not only is he naked and probably smelled really bad, he uh, is dwelling like he prefers to live among corpses in caves where the city has entombed their dead. Again, this is like something out of a horror movie. Add to that, he's very unstable. Some have tried to attempt to uh, diagnose his condition here as something like manic depressive psychosis. Um, However, the passage is going to indicate that something else is going on, something darker, even than that. Mark tells us that this man would cut himself with stones. And he would wail in the, in the evenings. Can you imagine hearing something, someone like this, knowing that this madman lived on the outskirts of your town? And when the, the townspeople had tried to bind him, which unfortunately was common treatment for the severely mentally ill um, during this time, even when they would bind him with chains, he would break them. Breaking chains. Again, this supernatural strength, where does that come from, according to our passage? Well, John Marks tell, tells us that this man was possessed by demons. You know, demons, this isn't the first time that we hear Jesus going face-to-face with spiritual entities like these ones. And I know some of us, we, we love talking about demons. You're right now leaning forward, all right, here we go. It's probably like talking about demons too much. I mean, I've met enough Christians to know that. But there's some of us who... who uh, I think roll our eyes at the idea of the devil. Our society in many ways prides itself on graduating from those kind of backwards explanations. To many of us, Satan and demons, they seem like leftover superstitions from a society that didn't have the science that we had that we have now. For many of us, the devil is just a it's a Halloween costume or a convenient symbol for what we don't want to take responsibility for. And yet I have to tell you, even so, our culture can't seem to shake the sense that our world is not all that it seems, particularly in a season like Halloween. In fact, it seems like Halloween itself is like a pressure release valve for our society, like the, that it gives us an opportunity to make sense for at least one day a year, or at least get out the sense that there might be forces— uh, carrying on just beyond our notice and that those forces may not all exist for our good that some may even be called evil it's as if modern people who are supposed to know better can't seem to move on from the mythologies of the past now I realize it's hardly airtight proof just that fact but is it really so easy to dismiss this haunting sense especially a sense like this that to be honest has existed across generations and cultures, including in many civilizations more civilized than ours that assume these realities exist, is it really so easy to dismiss this haunting sense as something childish? The Bible, turns out, doesn't deny or dismiss this sense, even the sense of dread. Ephesians 6 tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If you want to put that on the screen for us but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible not only assumes, but describes these intelligent and tremendously complex forces, which it claims operate not only in open and overt ways, but especially in, our, in a society like ours, they operate in ways that are secret, beyond sight, in ways that are covert, misleading persons, dividing relationships, corrupting government systems. In fact, you could argue that in a society which doesn't give much credibility to the existence of demons, you could argue that working and influencing things behind the scenes ends up working out more in their favor. Now, there is certainly a danger, and I've seen this again, been around, I've been a Christian long enough to see that there's a danger in giving demons too much credit. I've used the illustration before, I was on a missions trip, and one of my friends, she, she, uh, she hit her thumb with a hammer in a big building project, and a woman stopped and tried to cast the demon out of her thumb. Okay, so we're, sometimes we, we try and give these, these spiritual forces way too much credit, and we do pass off our responsibility for sin and evil in the world sometimes too freely, but it's also dangerous to leave these forces unacknowledged, forces that, according to the Bible, want nothing more than to oppose the glory of God, and these forces are committed to defy God and oppose all life, particularly those that are made in the image of God. The Bible confirms, in other words, that some of our nightmares are very much real. And one of those nightmares in our passage, is sprinting headlong for Jesus. The picture is really disturbing. A man's bo- mind, body, and soul given over to death while he was still alive. The, uh, a man, a human being, is made the plaything of demons, perhaps thousands of demons. After all, when these demons speak, as legion, a Roman legion would have been something like, could be up to uh, 6,000 soldiers. A man aware of his infection, of his possession, and yet powerless to do anything about it. One could scarcely imagine a more living hell. I choose that word carefully. Now on one level, how how could we relate to a man like this? We want to protect ourselves from a man like this. We want to get him in, an inst- in some sort of institution where he gets treatment and he's not a danger to society. Wretched and terrifying, this is the kind of person you cross the street to avoid. And yet, at another level, I want us to listen in to how the Bible actually describes you and I and our spiritual condition. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, notice this, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's another way of referring to the devil itself, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's lumping us all in that category. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Do you notice the language here? Language of spiritual death, irresistibly manipulated by the same forces that are having their way with this man in the the land of the Gerasenes. I appreciate how Phil Riken puts this. And to summarize, in case we didn't catch the parallels here, even for all of his misery, as he puts it, we can see ourselves in his situation because sin has similar effects on all of us. It exposes us naked in our guilt. It alienates us from one another, leaving us lonely and alone. It makes us violent, at least in our attitudes, if not in our actions. Spiritually speaking, we walk among the dead. Thus the madman in the graveyard shows the wretchedness of our condition outside of Christ. Reichen's point here is that we share actually a lot more in common with this man, this demoniac, this madman, when we see here is actually a living picture of what the Bible says is spiritually true of every single one of us. He's not the only one to make this connection, though. C.S. Lewis again, who wrote these children's book books. He makes sense of his past in this way, so he writes in his biography um, of uh, the season in which he lived as an outright atheist, somebody who did not believe in God, didn't give him credibility, saw that religion was a danger to the world in the season in which he lived as an atheist. Here's how he described his life prior to Christ. He described himself as a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. You see, when we see the demoniac, we, we in a sense see ourselves, or at least the very trajectory of the things that we think are bound to bring us freedom. We see what they make of us. We see what they manipulate us to. What they see what they produce from our life. These things that we've trusted in to save us, these things that we think our hope is found in, we see where that ends. According to the Bible, my name was Legion. I realize the Bible's take on this, in many ways, is the opposite of the message that modern society, like ours, tells us to believe. It can seem even more backwards to us than the Bible's teaching on the demonic realm. After all, isn't our sense of self-worth found in believing in ourselves and rehearsing and adding to our inner resume? You know, I actually don't think so. You see, I don't think a better self-image is found by praising myself in the mirror. By hoping that some way I might finally believe that I really am a star. My dreams can come true. A stable self-image, I think, in, in fact, is actually found through this kind of brutal honesty. Through confessing that I really do need deep change. And that change cannot come from me. That change must come from something outside of myself. There's actually freedom and I think a stable sense of self-image with that kind of brutal honesty. The kind of brutal honesty the Bible invites us to make. Only the gospel can free us to make the surprisingly freeing confession that I really am worse off than I have ever dared to admit. You see, only then can I finally give up on my self-salvation project, the thing I think will bring me confidence. But you would know as well as I do, you you ride that that roller coaster of self-esteem every day, don't you? It takes just one moment to feel like you're really killing it, and those where you really are convinced that nobody could possibly stick around for someone like you. The Bible gives us this freeing self-image by actually beginning by saying with it that I was nothing else than spiritually dead apart from Christ. Only when I give up on my self-salvation project can I finally find something good and enduring to rest my life upon. In fact, friends, when we take this seriously, you know what actually happens? We actually can finally begin to genuinely accept one another. You can actually begin to accept others in your life in a genuine way when you take this to be true. Regardless of background, regardless of what you have in common, after all, who could be more broken than I am, the Christian is left confessing. They say with amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Regardless, again, of what I might have claimed before, when I see others, I can say, who could be more hopeless than me? I was like a madman in my sin. My name was Legion, and it turns out without our without this perspective, here's what happens when we try to accept others in our lives, when we try to demonstrate mercy and compassion. You know what they drift towards? They drift towards self-righteousness. They drift towards paternalism. They sometimes drift towards bitterness. Here's why. We end up wondering, you know, I'll be honest, if they had just worked as hard as I did, I mean, if they just figured it out like I did, if they didn't just blame everyone like I don't, and without... The Bible's perspective on my condition, in my sin, it becomes almost impossible not to look down on my nose at others, not to turn people into projects. Friends, we are experts at justifying ourselves. Maybe maybe it's just me. Comparing ourselves to others, sizing ourselves up. That's how we get most of our self-esteem. And yet the gospel deflates all of this. And on the other side... It allows me to truly identify with whoever I am called to love. Even if nobody else would seem to love them, if everyone else has given up on them, if everyone calls them a hopeless cause, I know no greater hopeless cause than me. And I am able to say that I am just a beggar pointing others to the bread. Let me show you where that bread is found. And I am able to truly and passionately lead them straight to the good news of the gospel, which leads us, leads us second, not just to the madman, but to what the Bible calls the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer. Again, the whole scene is unsettling here, especially for Jewish men like Jesus and his disciples who were required by the law to go to some rather extreme lengths to keep themselves ritually unclean. I realize this is not, uh, some of these realities feel a little removed from our daily experience, but for a Jewish person, the way that they experienced a relationship with God, they experienced that friendship was by keeping themselves clean. But nothing about this is clean they are in an unclean land being gentile territory surrounded by unclean animals lots of bacon running around the hills only now to be confronted with an unclean man who preferred the company of unclean corpses oh and add to that he was dwelt by thousands upon thousands of unclean spirits What was Jesus to do as a serious Jewish man, let alone these apostles? How would Jesus respond to this whimpering, wailing madman, a mouthpiece for demons, now pleading with him for mercy? Surely, everyone reading this expects Jesus to draw back, as we can probably imagine that his disciples already had. They are backing up. They're pushing the boat out from shore. We can expect that Jesus would have this response. Perhaps he would realize the whole errand was a waste and get back to where it was once safe. Let's get back to Jewish territory. Come on, Jesus. Let's go, Jesus. And yet, Jesus, in a sense, it was this man that Jesus came for. Even if uh, a legion stood in the way, not even a legion could stand in the way of his power and his mercy, which pursues unexpectedly. Any of you a fan of old westerns? Okay, you could say that this is a—I saw a lot of hands on that one. That's awesome. Okay, so like Bonanza and all these. Anyways, regardless. So these—okay, this is a showdown at high noon. Or you could picture maybe uh, for others, uh, this is like a WWE matchup. Okay, this is this is Jesus versus the Legion, all right? Coming Saturday night. This, but nonetheless, this doesn't feel like a much of a match, does it? This Legion, it turns out, isn't the strongest thing around. It has kept the whole city in terror for a long time, and it clearly— now, this legion isn't bringing terror. The legion itself is terrified. It senses that there is a greater power, that they are no longer the strongest one in town, that they are hearing, again, you can't, I can't imagine the terror I would feel to hear a thousand demons speaking through a man's voice, but it is now the one standing over this man that will put the fear of God in everyone something even demons demons were afraid of, the son of the most high God, they call him, a being who they knew has greater power than they will ever have, who knows what he could and soon would do to them. Isn't it strange to see a demon beg? See, they fear hell more than anyone. And so they beg, the Son of the Most High God, don't torment us, don't send us away, let us, let us, let us enter those pigs. And as if to say, fine, if we, if we can't have him, Jesus, at least can we take them? And surprisingly, Jesus permits them. And let's not get that wrong, he, he permits them. He has to give them permission. And so releasing their hold on the man, they flee, driving the squealing swine to drown in the sea. Again, all of this is disturbing. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the disciples? It's as if now the dark intentions of these demons are fully revealed. What they intended for their previous prey, the hatred they feel for God, and everyone that is made in his image is now running headlong into the sea. But at another level, this seems to be a last act of defiance. It's a way of getting back at Jesus himself the one whose power is greater, ensuring that, you know, if they send all these pigs going into the sea, then Jesus is not going to be the seen as the hero in this circumstance. In fact, he's going to be banished as the enemy. After all, this herd of pigs is owned by someone, isn't it? It may well have represented the livelihood of several families. All that they had all that they had to their name, all that they had to their family, was now drowning in the depths of the sea. I mean, how are they going to explain to perhaps they they These pigs were being raised for the Roman soldiers that occupied Israel at the time. How are they going to explain to those Roman soldiers? Sorry, boys, (laughs) no carnitas tonight. I mean, these, these guys are in rough shape. These farmers, these hands, know that they've lost everything. And with all of this loss, what does Jesus have to show for it? I mean, look back at verse 15. Hearing from the herdsmen what Jesus has done, the people of the city come. They come to Jesus, and they see saw the demon-possessed man, it says, the one who had the legion, in case we got it wrong, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And what does it say? And they were afraid. In the midst of all the raw and brutal circumstances, we can forget the man within the madman. A man cut off from others, thrown away as dangerous. A man, in a, in a sense, who's been cut off from himself for a long time, mutilating his own flesh, not even in control of his own mind. A man, most importantly, cut off from God, knowing the, only the dark side of spiritual power and dwelling among the dead. We can forget the man who's behind all this. Everyone in the city knew how this story would end, of course. Eventually, this man would succeed in ending himself as he was attempting, no longer posing a danger to them. They would finally be able to forget them, forget him. And what about the man himself? Do you think he was looking to be rescued? Do you think he was looking for his life to be interrupted and rearranged? Is it the man, after all, who's pleading for mercy? No, it's the demons. Sometimes people, they come to Jesus. We're going to find this again next week in our passage. Some come begging Jesus for rescue. Some come eager and knowing that Jesus is the only hope that they have. And then there are some of us who God just chooses to interrupt, who God finds in the graveyard. We weren't looking for Jesus, and yet Jesus sought us. He found us. He interrupted our lives, and he completely upended them. I know several of you, and this is exactly your story. And some of you right now, you can't explain it right now, but it feels as if God is chasing you down, as if he will not leave you alone. Is Jesus pursuing you in this way? Is You, you may have imagined your life playing so, out so much differently, but is Jesus interrupting you? This is the good news of God's grace, friends, is that it doesn't, just, it doesn't wait for us to seek it out. It comes after us, and it intenges, intends to change absolutely everything about us. It intends never to leave us the same. It intends to change absolutely everything. This is, again, the good news of grace, God's grace. After all, what do we find in verse 15? A greater calm than what God had brought to the storm through Christ. Find A man who is calm, restored, clothed, praise God, and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. The restoration Jesus offers, after all, isn't just spiritual. It doesn't just change your outlook on life. It doesn't just give you a reason to love others or sleep at night. Those who belong to Jesus, as if they have received an entirely new life, as if they've been born again. And now that they've been restored to God, they wait for the restoration that is going to come to everything else. You see, in his kingdom, Jesus promises every effect of sin will be undone because sin has been defeated, because death itself has died. We wait for the shockwaves of God's mercy to reverberate through all of creation and no power, not even a legion, not even Satan himself can stand in its way. But what neither the disciples, nor the herdsmen, nor the man himself, neither of any of these know is that this final restoration would only come after an even more terrifying day. This final restoration would only come as these same forces of darkness would have their way, not with this man, but with Jesus himself. As David Garland points out, evil doesn't just simply disappear. It must be borne away by another, as the pigs had done. And for our sin to be really borne away, for us to really be delivered, Jesus would not be. Instead, like this man, Jesus himself would be stripped naked, bearing the shame of our sin. He would be made lonely, rejected by even his closest friends— He suffered the violence then of his enemies and would die as the punishment due a violent man. The word of power, which just cast out the legion, which just stopped the storm, would soon cry out in despair upon a Roman cross, only to die in that state, cut off and cursed to the joy of the powers of darkness i quoted a lot of Lewis today, but I want to quote one more time from Chronicles of Narnia, from this book, a children's book. One of the most powerful pictures of this suffering and shame comes from the death of Aslan the Great Lion, a lion of great power who could crush his enemies with one swipe of his paw, instead submitting himself to those enemies. Everyone knows who really has the power, and yet he allows these enemies to these these creatures it describes that stepped out of nightmares it seems he allows them to bind him to shave him to muzzle him to kick jeer and even spit upon him even to rejoice as C.S. Lewis says as if they had done something brave Jesus became a curse for us more importantly It was his death that defeated death and its minions, and it is his death that their final defeat was made certain. And for those who would hope in Jesus, even if they would be as wretched as the madman, the effects of all of this would be massive. Listen to a few of these. We who were naked, like the madman, would be clothed with his righteousness. We who were lonely would be would experience the unbreakable embrace of a new father and a new family. We who were violent in word and in deed would know peace and pursue it. We who were deranged, who aren't able to see ourselves, let alone the world clearly, would see the way, the truth, and the life. We who were slaves of darkness would be made servants of light. Just like this man, Christians have been completely and utterly restored I mean, can I get an amen to this? This is the good news of the gospel. We still wait for Jesus to finally and utterly conquer the the, 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 the abusing forces of evil. We do not need, though, to live in fear of them any longer because we know who has already accomplished the victory. These forces cannot triumph over Jesus. Anything that they continue to do, they only do by his permission, just like this legion. And one day, they along with all evil, all of our sin even, death itself will finally be destroyed. Friend, if you were not a Christian, would you turn in faith to the only one who has the power to restore you? The only one who has the power to restore me? The only one who can give real dignity, joy, and belonging to those who have only known the opposite their whole lives? Would you confess your need for forgiveness and rest in Jesus' finished work upon the cross? Or will you, like the crowds, send him away? Do you notice that here? What is their response? We're used to crowds being drawn to Jesus, loving Jesus, wanting to lift him on their shoulders, make him king, and yet what do they do here? Jesus, you gotta get out of here. You see the man, the restored man in front of them, the definition of a hopeless cause that apparently has received hope, all they can see when they see him is see what they have lost and stand to lose if Jesus sticks around. And so Jesus has to go. Isn't this so like us? Let me ask you, what is is more important to you than the restoration or the salvation of others? Your comforts? Sometimes our traditions? Your sense of stability? Your promising career? The approval of your peers? I mentioned the closer you get to Jesus, the more threatening his power will seem. Even many religious people can only see in Jesus what they stand to lose. Their obedience becomes a way to control God, to make sure that he comes through for them. All the while, they are keeping him at arm's length. And will you come, the question is, to Jesus for restoration. Are you willing to lose so that others too might be restored, even if that means that God will rearrange your life? Or will you send him away? See, throughout Mark, that's the only two responses. We can't be mild to Jesus. We can only go in faith or rejection. But now let's consider finally the missionary. After all, our story comes full circle, doesn't it? The madman is made... A missionary. This is very strange. One of my greatest joys, I have to tell you, is seeing someone become a Christian. And the taste of God's grace is still so strong, it's just that they can't help but talk about it, even if they look like an idiot. I love it. The fear, which keeps so many of us silenced, hasn't silenced them yet. It, 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 seriously, it, it puts real fire back in my bones, like a, like a puppy who hangs around with an old dog, reminding me that we really do believe the gospel is the word of life. But as the costs become to mount, begin to mount up, the unfortunate thing I so often see as the awkwardness of being a public Christian begins to catch up with this new Christian, They begin to feel, as they begin to feel the real loneliness of this new way, they grow quieter. The fiery passion of their zeal begins to smolder, and it's as if they're magnetically drawn to retreat into only Christian community. Now, we're made for Christian community, but that Christian community is meant to live on mission, to send us on mission, and I fear so many of us this was our story, too. At one point, we were bold in talking to others. We knew of our need. We knew what it was like to, to be the madman who was now restored, who was is, who is accepted, welcomed near, even though we weren't seeking after God. But then over time, it became, because we realized it was very unsafe for us to live as a public Christian, we, we went where we felt like it was safe, to be along, uh, around people who agreed with us, to isolate ourselves, to hang on until Jesus comes in glory by and by. In many ways, Some of us, you know, when it comes down to it, we don't really have any friends who aren't Christians anymore. In some ways, it's just easier. This seems to be what this man is facing, isn't it? Only very front end. You could say that right now, after he has been restored, this man feels more lonely than ever before, and he begs, as we probably would have too, Jesus, can't I just go with you? And yet Jesus tells him, basically, no. No. Why? Well, this reminds me of Jesus' words to his disciples later in his life on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, at one point, he prays for his disciples knowing that their lives are about to get very difficult because they follow him. And here's what he prays in John 17. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. But then listen to verse 15. Do not ask that you take I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This verse confuses many religious people, especially those who see the world as getting worse and worse around them. They want nothing more than to leave it behind until they can. Uh, and until they can, they plan to just bunker down, ride it out, and pray that they don't take as too many hits along the way. I experience this particularly with those who sense that they are getting closer to their own death. They just want the Lord to take them. They see every day as a chore. They say that there couldn't possibly be purpose for me any longer. But according to Jesus, he has intentionally kept Christians in the world. This one. If you have today, he has given you today. Why? Why? that we might live as his witnesses. He points us again out in John 17 in verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them, where? Into the world. The man in our passage wasn't looking to be interrupted. He wasn't looking for his life to be arranged, and he certainly wasn't looking to be given a new job to do. Do you think he felt cut out or qualified? You couldn't be more untrained more of a new believer than this man was. I think many of us can relate. We don't feel like we know enough or have enough courage or the right resume to be a witness for Jesus. And yet, notice what Jesus asks him to do. I love this. And we see this as a pattern from Christ. Verse 19 in Mark chapter 5. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Christians, If you are a Christian, let me ask you. Can you do that? Can you go to those God has put you in relationship with and tell them how much the Lord has done for you? I realize many of us have imagined evangelism taking place in the form of grand debate or the kind of hit-and-run presentation or perhaps going to deepest, darkest Africa. But so often, conversations about the gospel are just like this, being honest about one, your own brokenness, and two, telling, the other, telling others about how much God has done for you. That's what people need from you. They need to see a life that is made sense of by the gospel. Not somebody who is completely put, it, put together, not someone who always has the answers. They need to see someone who knows their brokenness, and it brings them great joy, because they know on the other side of that brokenness is real, enduring love. I was far worse off than I ever dared admit, and yet because of Jesus, I am far more loved than I ever dared hope. That's what people need to hear from you. Madman, the Messiah, and the missionary. Do you see yourself in this story? Lord, we are very grateful for your word, which comforts and corrects us, and I, I know that some are experiencing a mixture of both, including myself I pray for for those of us who have given up on receiving hope from you, who feel like we're the last who could ever belong to the family of God. I pray that we find great comfort in the madman because we're so close to confessing the truth, to seeing the realities as they are, and I pray that we would go even further to see our spiritual death, that we are unable to save ourselves and we would rest upon Christ for forgiveness. I pray that those of us, again, who, who are not sure where we're at with God, would see be so compelled by the compassion of Jesus Christ, by the pursuing nature of Jesus Christ, to see God's grace that chases us down and it is not dependent upon how aware of it we are. And those of us who are believers, would we live as believers, would refuse, not even we would eradicate any ounce of self-righteousness within us. We wouldn't look down our nose when we look at others. We wouldn't keep others at a stiff arm. We wouldn't ever Allow to come from our lips an ounce of rejection, saying they cannot come near. Or we know that we didn't deserve it either. And yet, it, where would we be without your pursuing grace? And so we would be freely, openly, persistently welcoming, giving mercy to those who had no mercy, because that's what we've received. And Lord, we pray that we would from that look and watch for the opportunities you've given us this week, even the people you have sovereignly put as friends and neighbors and family members. Those weeks ex- we run across in our community, you, the people you've put us around that need to hear from us that twofold statement, I am deeply broken, let me tell you how.